Our Father, we stand in awe of who you are and of the word of God which has been sent forth to us to teach us of your nature and your character, to reveal to us the plan of salvation, to draw us to you and to be the lamp unto our path. And Father, as we study the nation of Israel and how closely they mirror us in our thoughts and our attitudes and our walk, I pray, Father, that we will not just be hearers of this word, but you will enable us to be doers, to incorporate the word into the very heart of our being and to walk according to its divine direction. Father, I pray that you'll be present with us in power this morning. In this room, in our midst, in the service as it is transpiring concurrently and in each Sunday school class at this hour, we ask for your divine presence. And for those, Lord, who are not able to be with us this morning because of illness or other matters in their lives, we pray that they will sense our prayers for them even at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like to begin again with chapter 9 of the book of Numbers. And I'd like to read this uh, first portion of it, which is where we ended up last week. Numbers chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. Thus the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Now let the sons of Israel observe the Passover at its appointed time. On the fourteenth day of this month at twilight, you shall observe it at its appointed time, and you shall observe it according to all its statutes and according to all its ordinances. So Moses told the sons of Israel to observe the Passover. And they observed the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the sons of Israel did. But there were some men who were unclean because of the dead person, so that they could not observe Passover on that day. So they came before Moses and Aaron on that day. And those men said to him, Though we are unclean because of the dead person, why are we restrained from presenting the offering of the Lord at its appointed time among the sons of Israel? Moses therefore said to them, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If any one of you or of your generations becomes unclean because of a dead person, or is on a distant journey, he may, however, observe the Passover to the Lord. In the second month, on the fourteenth day at twilight, they shall observe it. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. And they shall leave none of it until morning, nor break a bone of it. According to all the statute of the Passover, they shall observe it. But the man who is clean, and is not on a journey, and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people, for he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. And if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord, according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinances, so he shall do. You shall have one statute, both for the alien and for the native of the land." Last week I mentioned towards the end of class that 
God gave Israel the command that on the 14th of Nisan, uh, they would observe the Passover as it had occurred one year before in Egypt. And I mentioned to you that that date came in early spring of the year, sometime in our March, April, you know, sometime in that uh, framework. And that uh, the reason for this change for Israel, that there were several reasons. One is that that marked their departure from Egypt. Uh, it marked a new beginning. It, it was a new life for Israel. It was a next step in the plan of redemption as God delivered Israel from bondage and out into the wilderness for their encounter with God at Sinai. Secondly, it, it was more or less coincident with the vernal equinox and the, the springing of new life. You know, we, we have a tendency to, to shy away from that because so many pagans practiced what we might call spring fertility rites. But because the pagans have, have you know, kind of destroyed something doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. That was the time of the year in Canaan, because Canaan is in the northern hemisphere as we are, that new life sprang out of the fields and the flowers bloomed and the barley came into full head at that time. So it was a reasonable time to begin the new year when new life is beginning. And then lastly, that they might have a calendar separate from the one they had lived under for 400 years. And I described a little bit how the Egyptian calendar functioned last time. And uh, the Egyptian calendar had its beginning in, uh, towards the end of summer. That was the new year, towards the end of summer when the flood came. And, and so God backed Israel's up and gave them a new calendar. So in, in so many ways, it was to be a new life, a new beginning for Israel. And then, of course, one of the focuses of this passage is on the fact that because a person was unable to celebrate the Passover at the appointed time does not mean that he would not be able to celebrate it at all. But God allowed it to occur a month later for the person who was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean because they had had to bury someone who had died or because they were away on a journey. This, under, this, this gives us a, a sense of understanding how God cares for the nitty-gritty things of life. You know, God knows what's going on in your life. God knows what's going on in my life, and He cares about that. And, and God is not up there as, you know, kind of a Gestapo-type character, and the minute you deviate the slightest bit from what somebody says is what He wants you to do, that He's going to smack you down. I mean, God has set His law, and, and we must live accordance, in accordance with His principles and live in obedience to Christ. But God understands and God will bring us in by His methods and His choice. What's interesting, uh, particularly in verses 11 through 14 of the passage we just read, is that, for example, in, in verse 11, we, we find some important insight concerning the significance of Pesach, or Passover as we call it, where we're told that they were to eat it just as they had that first night in Egypt when the whole thing was introduced to them by God and, and the laws were laid down. That's what it's referring to. The statutes and ordinances of the Passover refer back to the Exodus passage where it was initially instituted and it was to remind them of the passing of the death angel overhead and not touching the lives of those upon in whose houses the blood had been spread on the doorpost and the lintel. But in, in verse 12, we're told, and it's kind of interesting, it says, they shall leave none of it till morning, nor break a bone of it. Now, what, what is interesting is that 
Not breaking a bone of the Passover lamb is mentioned only two times in this passage and in the Exodus 12 passage. The only places where breaking the bone of the Passover uh, lamb is specifically mentioned. It is inferred in, in a psalm too, but that seems to draw back to this particular thing. What is interesting then is to go to the 19th chapter of John. John chapter 19. And let me start with verse 31. The Jews, therefore, because it was the day of preparation, so that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. The soldiers, therefore, came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other man who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus... When they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately there came out blood and water. And he who has seen has borne witness, and his witness is true. He knows what he is telling, that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things came to pass, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. And, another, and again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Well, the only places in Scripture where it talks about the bone not be bro being broken is in these two Passover passages. So that's a direct reference of Christ to the Passover. I mean, it's a direct reference because there is no other Old Testament passage that deals with the not breaking of the bone that this passage fulfills or makes a statement back to that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And, and, you know, that, that just gives us a, a distinct direct tie from the Old Testament to the New Testament in, in the place of Jesus as the Passover lamb. And then in verses 13 and 14 of this passage, we have what, what I think are writ of, uh, of Numbers 9. We have just a, a wonderful statement of exclusiveness and inclusiveness. It says in verse 13, But the man who is clean and is not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the Passover, that person shall then be cut off from his people, for he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. That is a statement of exclusivity. Statement of exclusivity. The person who, out of arrogant unbelief or simply disobedient neglect, does not observe the Passover, that person will carry on himself his own sin. He is cut off from his people. That doesn't mean simply that he's going to be sent out of the tribal camp and have to go live with the Amorites or the Canaanites or somebody. It means he is cut off eternally. It's an excommunication, to use a, a Catholic term. This man has chosen not to be one of the children of God. Therefore, he is cut off from his people. And that is an exact parallel to Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb. Because the failure to believe in the atoning death of Jesus Christ and to live in obedience to him results in one not having a part in the church with a capital C. I don't mean neighborhood church or this church or that church, but the universal church, bride of Christ, body of Christ. Cut off from that, not just physically on this earth, but eternally. Eternally cast into outer darkness, separated forever from God. So the two parallels are exact here. 
To fail to celebrate the Passover is to fail to believe in the efficacy of the Passover lamb and to obey the word of God. To fail to believe in Jesus Christ's atoning work is to fail to believe the truth and to be disobedient and thus to be cut off. The parallel is exact here between these two. Christianity has, true Christianity, has been challenged by many in this modern world for being narrow-minded and bigoted, you know? Exclusive. Little old club over here and everybody else is out. Well, sorry, but that's what the scripture says. It says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There is no other name. It's not Allah or Buddha or Huda, Huda, Wada or anything else, you know. It's only Jesus Christ. Now, those who argue with that are those who don't want to believe in Jesus Christ. They're the ones who neglect the Passover, if, if you will, and therefore they have chosen to be cut off from God's people. And then you go to the next verse, you find, the, you find an inclusiveness here in verse 14. And if an alien sojourns among you and observes the Passover to the Lord according to the statute of the Passover and according to its ordinance, so he shall do. You shall have one statute for both the alien and the native of the land. The Passover was inclusive in that an alien, that means a non-Hebrew, could be included, could celebrate the Passover and be included in its spiritual blessing if he became a proselyte. Now, it says according to the statutes. Let's look at what the statute was. Exodus chapter 12, verse 48 tells us what the statute was. It says, But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. When we practice communion... Communion is an exclusive and yet inclusive practice. It's exclusive in that no uncircumcised person may participate of it. That is, no person who has been born again by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, no person who has not been born again by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ can take communion. And, and the scripture says those who do, that many of them ended up sick and many of them ended up dead. And, and that is why when communion is taken, we should all, as the passage in, in Corinthians tells us, we should search our hearts and make sure that our souls are right before God before we practice communion so that we don't take communion with, with sin in our hearts, you know, and unforgiveness in our hearts. We need to put that all before the Lord because we're dealing with the blood of the Passover lamb here. But it is... Um, inclusive in that it doesn't matter what denomination you're from. Within the alliance, it doesn't anyway. I mean, you can be a, a Roman Catholic and come to our service, and if you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and been born again, you, you can take of the communion or, or whatever denomination you might be. As long as that circumcision, that spiritual circumcision has occurred, you're welcome to the communion. But there are, as you probably know, denominations that if you're not an absolute you know, card-signing member of that denomination, why they, they withhold the communion from you. This was possible, thus, for the Gentile to be included in God's blessing. Now, what is so interesting about this is that you go later in, in Jewish history, you come to the New Testament times, 
And, and the New Testament Hebrews, the Jews, considered a Gentile to be an absolute total, as we were talking, Gwen and I were talking, dog. And, and there's, there, there's, there's just no way that the Hebrews and the um, Gentiles could be considered under one roof together. Oh, sure, there were a few who gave money to the synagogue, you know, like Cornelius the Centurion, that had some acceptance, but they, they don't remember. They don't remember that with them in the wilderness traveled non-Hebrews. They came out of Egypt with them. Uh, in fact, we're going to be reading in a moment here about one family that, that Moses urged to come, be with us, join in the joy of our Lord. And, and, and that anybody who was an alien, who, who became circumcised and wanted to celebrate the Passover, was welcome and was included. And so is the church is inclusive. As Paul says, and, and you know the passage well, let me just read the verse to you. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now that rubbed the Jews of that day horribly. You know, that's why many thought Paul had just you know, totally gone out the window uh, from what he had been before. And the, all of this is found in the Passover the exclusivity and the inclusivity of what it means to be a part of the family of God. The latter part of that ninth chapter of Numbers, beginning at verse 15, let me just uh, read that. Now on the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And in the evening it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. And at the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle for many days, the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. camped. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted up in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in, in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. At the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. We have a tendency to rail against the Hebrews a great deal and to keep emphasizing how often they disobeyed, and that was often. But we also fail to remember sometimes that they obeyed. They obeyed. We have affirmation here of that obedience. 
And as God was patient with Israel, so God is patient with you and with me. I don't know about you, but I find it's hard to go through one complete day without having had at least one little rebellious thought at some point during the day. Not, no, not a rebellious thought in that, oh, I don't want God to be my God anymore, but you know, a little act of disobedience, a little act of self-will and self-pride and, and pushing down someone else, whatever it happens to be, you know, that, that happens. These people will be rebellious and they will rebel many times. In fact, we hardly get them on their journey before wham, wham, in one chapter, it's bang, bang. Two rebellions in a row. And you think, what's the matter with these people? All we have to do is look in the mirror and then we know what's the matter with these people. <laughs> but in spite of it all, in direct response to God, they moved. In direct response to God, they didn't move. Now this period of time that we're coming to is often called the wilderness wandering. However, it was a wandering only in the sense that Israel failed to go into Canaan at the moment God said they ought to go in, and they ended up out in the wilderness for another 38 years. But it was not a wandering in the sense that they just moved about aimlessly, not knowing where to go next, and just camped here, camped there. No. They camped when God said camp. They moved when God said move. He led them through the wandering. It was not an aimless thing. It was a directed thing, as we just read. Whether the cloud remained a day, a month, or a year, they stayed. And when it moved, they moved. It wasn't funny. God alone chose when the Israelites would move. And they obeyed, even in the midst of their disobedience. Well, let's look at the 10th chapter of Numbers. In this 10th chapter, we read of Israel's first departure from Sinai and the initial migration towards Canaan. But in the very first part of the chapter, we have some interesting statements concerning how they were to march in an orderly fashion. Let me read the first 10 verses of chapter 10. The Lord spoke further to Moses, saying, Make yourselves two trumpets of silver, of hammered work. You shall make them, and you shall use them for summoning the congregation and for having the camps set out. And when both are blown, all the congregation shall gather themselves together to you at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Yet if only one is blown, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall assemble before you. But when you blow an alarm, the camps that are pitched on the east side shall set out. And when you blow an alarm the second time, the camps that are pitched on the south side shall set out. An alarm is to be blown for them to set out. When convening the assembly, however, you shall blow without sounding an alarm. The priestly sons of Aaron, moreover, shall blow the trumpets. And this shall be for you a perpetual statute throughout your generations. And when you go to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, that you may be remembered before your Lord, the Lord your God, and be saved from your enemies. Notice why. Why should they blow the trumpets? That you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and be saved from your enemies. We'll see how that works out in a minute here. Also in the day of your gladness and in your appointed feasts, 
And on the first days of your months you shall blow the trumpets for your burnt offerings over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a, as a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. God is the author of order, not of confusion. Therefore, a system of communication needed to be developed. God is a God of practicality. God knows what needs to be done in order to get the things done that He has commanded. Moses is commanded here to make two silver trumpets by which to communicate His orders to the people. Again, Ronald Allen, in his commentary on Numbers, makes what I thought was kind of an interesting summary statement here. He says, All seems to be in readiness now for the triumphal march of the people of God. They have been mustered for battle and stationed for encampment. They have been put through numerous paces of purification ritual, celebrated their deliverance from Egypt in the feast of the Passover, worshipped the Lord with sumptuous gifts, responded faithfully to His every word through His prophet Moses, and sensed the awe of His presence through cloud and fire. One thing remains, the fashioning of trumpets and the establishment of the appropriate tattoos that they will signal. Then let the march begin. These trumpets are, are not the often referred to trumpets in, in the Old Testament. These are not shofars. The shofar is the ram's horn trumpet, the old trumpet of, of Israel, which of course was still used too. These trumpets were metal trumpets. We're told they were to be made out of silver. They were probably the long, slender tube which bailed out at the end that we often think of from the Middle Ages, you know, where the guy gets up there with his little hat and, you know, his cape and you know, this flag is hanging down. He blows this thing and announces the coming of the king. That's probably the type of trumpet that we're talking about here. These were the trumpets that, when blown, their sounds were very different from that of the shofar, a higher sound than the shofar would make. The shofars were limited in the variation that they could uh, make compared to the silver trumpet. Now let's think of the practicality of this. We have at least two million people spread out over the plain. Now I've, I sat down last night, I, I do this every once in a while because I have a penchant for this, and, and I said, let's give every family 30 foot spread for their tent. So that's you know, 30 feet by 30 feet, and figure that out and then divide it into the number of uh, square feet that's in a square mile and find out how many families you could have in a square mile. Anyway, and I figured six piece persons to a family. Anyway, uh, I figured that they could put the whole camp, including the tent of meeting, in a thousand acres. That's with two million people. Now, a thousand acres is quite a bit of space, you know, especially if you're out there trying to cut it all down with a sickle, a scythe or whatever, sickle. But a thousand acres, it's a little farther than I'd like to shout. Back in the days of George Whitfield, George, Whit George Whitfield was an evangelist who came from England to the, uh, to the American colonies back in the early 18th century, about the time of John Wesley. And he would preach without amplification aid, because there wasn't any amplification aid in those days. And he would just stand uh, by a riverbank and he would speak out to the people. Well, you know, Benjamin Franklin was a very interesting person. Benjamin Franklin, in many ways, was kind of enigmatic. He professed deism in many ways, and yet 
he, he was a man who loved to listen to, John, to George Whitfield. And anyway, at one of George Whitfield's sermons, he decided to perform a scientific experiment. You know, Benjamin Franklin was noted for his, his interest in science. In fact, that's the primary thing for which he was noted in Europe, particularly in France, was for his scientific ideas. But anyway, he actually started pacing off how far away he could still hear George Whitfield. You know, and he backed up and he backed up and he backed up and then he figured, well, from where I'm standing here, a crowd of 30,000 could hear George Whitfield preach. 30,000. Well, you know, you go to the old tabernacle that uh, Moody used to preach in, uh, is that, of that order. He used to preach to a crowd of 6,000 or so like that without amplification, but that was inside a building. Imagine preaching open air to 30,000 people. The guy had a strong voice, obviously. But uh, Moses wasn't going to get out there in the middle of the camp and yell across the 1,000 acres you know, to all these people. So some kind of method of signaling was needed, and so these trumpets were ordained by God. And we're told in this passage here that when both trumpets were sounded simultaneously, Moses was summoning the whole nation. Now, that didn't mean all two million people, of course. It meant basically the heads of all the households, which would gather together to, to hear what Moses had to say. If a single trumpet sounded alone, then only the tribal leaders would come, which would be just a few people. Uh, maybe just the 12 or 13, or maybe as later on we'll see the 70 elders that, that uh, God ordained for, for Israel. From the 5th to the 10th verses in this passage which we read, we must assume that different tattoos were blown to move out different portions of the camp. In other words, one sound was made and the, the western camp knew it was supposed to move, and then another sound from the eastern camp and the northern camp and the southern camp. And the different sounds were made for coming to a particular festival. Another sound was made if there's a war alarm. Whatever it was, they had to de develop a whole series of sounds and signals that they would become aware of and acquainted with in order to assemble for war, for festivals, for information, for sacrifices, or, or whatever it might be. From the eighth verse, we discover who was to do this blowing. And the scripture tells us the sons of Aaron. There were two of them probably why there were two trumpets. And these two men were to blow the signals, whatever the signal was for. And what that helps us to understand is not just any old John Doe. Now, they could have picked somebody who was the best trumpeter in the camp. You know, somebody who had practiced on the shofar forever, you know. I don't know how much practice it takes to blow the shofar, but, uh, but no, the sons of Aaron were to blow the signal. To me, that indicates something of the spiritual dedication of all of this. The fact that there is no such thing as a separation between the so-called sacred and the secular. It's kind of like, you know, you come to church on Sunday and I'm sacred. I go to work on Monday and I'm secular. No. We're the children of God any day of the week. We're to live for Him any day of the week in any venue. And, and so the trumpet was to be blown by the very priests themselves, one of whom would become the next high priest. They were to be the ones who would learn all the different tattoos that had to be sounded, and they would be the ones who would then actually blow the horn for assembly, for march, for war, for festival. And what this indicated was that it didn't matter whether that trumpet was being sounded for them to gather, the trumpet was being sounded for them to march, the trumpet was being sounded for war. The trumpet was being sounded for sacrifice. 
God was directly involved in all of it. All of it. Not just coming for the sacrifice God is there, going to war, why it's got nothing to do with God. No. They were God's people. And for every call, God was to be involved. God was to be directly involved. Whether it be war or peace, assembly or sacrifice, whatever it was to be, God was directly involved. And so, as I emphasized when we went past that uh, particular verse, the blowing of the trumpet is analogous to prayer. Remember, we read that it says at the end of verse 10 that the trumpet was to be blown over your offerings, your sacrifice, your peace offering, and they shall be as a reminder of, of you before your God. And then back up in verse 9, when you go out to war in your land against the adversary who attacks you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets that you may be remembered before the Lord. So the trumpet is to remember the Lord and to be remembered before the Lord. It becomes a prayer. The blowing of the trumpet is analogous to prayer. It's analogous to this, the, the incense that was burned on the golden altar there before the sacrifice was made inside the Holy of Holies. It's symbolic. Symbolic of prayer. As you go to war, your prayer is to God to give you the victory. It was God who led them in march or led them in battle. God was to be the focus of feast, assembly, sacrifice, war, whatever it might be. God was not to be excluded, but to be totally included. Verse 11 of chapter 10, we begin to read some of the details. Now, if you'll be patient, we'll move down through this passage. Now, it came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, that the cloud was lifted. This is the very first time that the cloud is lifted from the tabernacle of the testimony. And the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. So they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And the standard of the camp of the sons of Judah according to their armies set out first with Nashon, the son of Amminadab, over its army, and Nathaniel, the son of Zuar, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar, and Eliab, the son of Helen, over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulon. Now notice this order. It is significant. Then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out. Next, the standard of the camp of Reuben, according to their armies, set out with Eliezer, the son of Shadur, over its army, and Shulamuel, the son of Zerushaddai, over the tribal army of the sons of Simeon, and Elisaphath, the son of Duel, was over the tribal army of the sons of Gad. Then notice, then the Kohathites set out, carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Next, the standard of the camp of the sons of Ephraim, according to their armies, was set out. Elishama, the son of Amahud, over its army. And Gamaliel, the son of Padazer, over the tribal army of the sons of Manasseh. And Abaddon, the son of Gedeoni, over the tribal army of Benjamin. 
Then, notice, the standard of the camp of the sons of Dan, according to their armies, which formed the rear guard for all the camps, set out, with Ahazer, the son of Mishadai, over its army, and Pajil, the son of Akron, over the tribal army of the sons of Asher, and Ahara, the son of Enon, over the tribal army of the sons of Naphtali. This was the order of march of the sons of Israel by their armies as they set out. These people have been 10 or 11 months there at Sinai before the Lord in instruction, in preparation, and in organization for this very day. It was all done to prepare them for this day in which they were to march. The 20th day of the second month, E.R., of the second year of the Exodus, the cloud of the tabernacle was lifted, and Israel began the great adventure. The Israels had been born out of Egypt, born again at Mount Sinai, and now they were to begin the walk of faith and obedience. This was not to be a haphazard mob action. You cannot view this as just a jillion people walking out across the landscape, creating a huge cloud of dust, and, you know, just like a plague of grasshoppers moving across the land. It was done in absolute order. God is a God of order. It was an organized trek. It wasn't the Sooners all trying to get land in Oklahoma, you know. <laughs> this was a highly organized movement. The tribes that camped on the east side of the tabernacle marched first. Now remember, the tabernacle precinct was set up. It was rectangular in shape. The precinct was rectangular. The tabernacle was rectangular. The opening of the precinct and the opening of the tabernacle itself faced east. So these were the tribes that were camped in the direction the tabernacle faced. These tribes began first. And we're told that the lead tribe was the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah. Not the eldest son, but the tribe from which would come the king, David. And then the king of kings, Jesus Christ. This is no accident. Then Judah was immediately followed by Issachar and Zebulon. And we're told that these tribes formed the vanguard. They were out front, leading the whole trek. Immediately behind them, as I tried to emphasize when we got there, followed the clans of Gershon and Merari who were responsible for taking down the tabernacle and for clearing all the framework, all the wood, all the foundations, and carrying the curtains and the coverings from the tabernacle. They were responsible for transporting that, those goods. And remember, they have the ox carts, 12 ox carts for doing this. Six, six ox carts and 12 oxen for transporting all of this material. Then, so you've got three tribes first, and then you have this group, okay? Next came the tribes from the south side. Now comes Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And immediately following them, we read, come the Kohathites, the third of the clans of the Levites, and they're the ones who carried the holy implements. Why do they come here? You know, I, I was looking at one commentary, and this commentary showed three tribal groups, all the Levites, and then three tribal groups. That's not what this says. 
This tells us that one tribal group went first, then two of the clans of the Levites, then came another tribal group before the Kohathites came. And, of course, the Kohathites were, were the ones who carried all the, the furniture, furniture of the tabernacle, and including the Ark of the Covenant, which, as we'll see in a minute, wasn't actually carried at this point. But nevertheless, that's where everything else was carried. Now, the scripture tells us why this was done. The Kohathites, verse 21, Then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy objects, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. They were separate from the other Levites so that when Gershon and uh, Merari got there, they had already got the tabernacle up. So when these guys came in, they just trucked right on in and put it right where it was supposed to go. They didn't stand around with it for half a day, waiting for the thing to get put up. Now, there are those who try to say that the numbers here in numbers are conflated. They're inflated. And that there couldn't possibly have been two and a half million people. There couldn't have been 600,000 men. You've got to knock off one zero, maybe two zeros. We'll do that and see what you end up with. You know? we're, we're talking about, let's say, then 20,000 people. And these 20,000 people, I mean, how far back are you if you're only one little group behind uh, the other group? I mean, how in the world are they going to get that tabernacle set up in time before you get there with all the implements if there's only that many people? But if you're talking about two and a half million, you can understand. It's going to take a while for Reuben and, and Simeon and Gad to get their act to this next site so that the Kohathites will get there. And in the meantime, the Gershonites and the Merariites have been putting this thing up there. I mean, it gives you a time frame there. And, and to me, that's an argument against blowing, or shrinking these numbers down to a dinky little number simply because you can't understand how they, that many people could live in the wilderness. Well, it's easy to understand. It's called M-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, you know? God gave them the food. They didn't have to live off the land. And Moses already knew that you could raise a lot of sheep out there because that's where he used to herd sheep. We have to also understand that 3,500 years ago, the climate of the world was not what it is today. And the climate in the Sinai was undoubtedly considerably wetter than it is today. I mean, it's a horrible desert today. But it was wetter then. And therefore, there would have been more grass and more water available then than there is now. Following the Kohathites came the camp of the west, the Ephraimites, the Manasseh, Benjamin, and then the rear guard made up of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. It's funny, I, I was reading this, I think, wow, you can remember that last group pretty easy. Dan, Asher, Naphtali. If you take the first letters of Dan, Asher, Naphtali, you have got Dan again. <laughs> Dan, Dan. <laughs> Dan followed by Dan. Dan, Asher, Naphtali. Also, when I was studying this, I thought it was really interesting to note that not a single tribal name is, first letter in English, of, of a tribal name is repeated. Every tribe has, uh, the, begins with a different letter from every other tribe. That's kind of interesting, because we have a tendency to name our kids with similar names. Well, let, let me just say one other thing here to, to, to bring this to a close today. Why are the tribes grouped the way the tribes are grouped? Why is it Judah, Issachar, Zebulon? Why is it Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin? You know, why is it Dan, Asher, Naphtali? Were they just haphazardly grouped? Uh, did Moses just say, well, let's see, I think uh, these three ought to be over here and these three over here. Hey, who's around you? Oh, you guys, why don't you go over here? No. You'll notice something here if you check this out. They seem to be grouped according to the matriarchs of the nation. The Western group, for example, 
Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin. Ephraim and Manasseh were the sons of Joseph. Joseph and Benjamin were the sons of Rachel. So they were grouped by Rachel. These are the Rachel boys over here in, in the Western group. And then if you look at the Northern group, uh, the tribes of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, they are the sons of the handmaids. Dan and Asher were the uh, sons of Bilhah and Zilpah of Naphtali, uh, Na Naphtali of Zilpah. <laughs> the Eastern group, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon are all sons of Leah as are the southern group, Reuben, Simeon, and then we have this little guy, Gad. Now, who was the sixth son of, not, not in order, but in, in listing these here, who was the blood sixth son of Leah that I didn't mention? Levi, right? Levi. But, but Levi isn't in this organization because the Levites are all living in around the, temp, the tabernacle precinct. So somebody has to take Levi's place. Now, in the overall tribal organization, the doubling of Joseph, the double blessing of Joseph, which made Ephraim and Manasseh, creates 12 tribes without Levi. But in the matriarchal order, Gad takes Levi's place because Gad was the firstborn of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid. So what you have is the tribes grouped according to the matriarchal order of things. And it's very, very interesting. Now. Was there any practical reason for that? Well, it's very possible, and I could, you know, we can only assume this, that although it's been half a millennium since the patriarchs, Dan and Gad and Naphtali and so forth, had died, but it's very possible that there still was some kind of a, a closer fellowship between those who were from the same mother. This was true back when the mothers were alive. And, and so maybe it was still true now. It may be that Dan, Asher, and, Naph and uh, Naphtali got along better than if Dan were stuck in with Judah and, and Reuben or something. You know, uh, we don't really know. But remember, the sons of the handmaids were looked down upon by the sons of Leah and, and Rachel. So it could very well be that that's why they're grouped. I mean, God is a very practical God as well as carrying out His plan and order of things. There's a lot here. Well, we'll, we'll pick up next week, and there's, there's some numbers involved here too that I think are interesting. And then we deal with this man, Hobab. The, the next, next statement is, Moses talks to Hobab and says, why don't you come with us? Why? I mean, he's a Midianite. Well, we'll talk about that next week.